welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Wednesday, June 19th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, who gets center stage at the debates? Primary Ride Home debate bingo is coming. How Bullock plans to spend debate night. Biden's remarks at a fundraiser spur a big debate of their own. And Buttigieg responds to an officer-involved shooting in South Bend. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Yesterday, NBC News announced which candidates will get center stage placement in next week's DNC debates. They decided to put the highest polling candidates in the middle seats, then build outward from there. One interesting detail is that they used June 12th as the polling cutoff, so whoever was doing best up through that point got preferential placement. So what this means is, on night one, you've got Warren and O'Rourke in the middle. As I mentioned yesterday, they are the two poll leaders on that night, though Warren is substantially ahead of O'Rourke right now. Then on night two, Biden and Sanders will get the center seats because they are the highest polling candidates on that night. While this is a very visual story, I'm going to try to paint the picture with words. Imagine night one first, okay? In the middle, you've got Warren on the left and O'Rourke on the right. They're both in the middle seats. Let's fill in the people who are next to Warren. Building outward from her, we've got Booker, Castro, Ryan, and then de Blasio. Okay, now let's fill out that right-hand side. After O'Rourke, we've got Klobuchar, Gabbard, Inslee, and Delaney. Okay, and now let's lay out night two. In the middle, you've got Biden on the left and Sanders on the right. Building out from Biden on the left, we'll have Buttigieg, Yang, Hickenlooper, and Williamson. Then, building out from Sanders on the right are Harris, Gillibrand, Bennett, and Swalwell. Now, if this whole reading out a list thing doesn't work for you, just check the first link in the show notes and watch the short video. And one more thing on this. I don't know if this placement thing matters at all. Reading from an analysis in New York Magazine by Ed Kilgore, quote, It's unclear how much stage placement really matters in these events. Typically, the number of questions directed to candidates, which often varies, is more important than where they appear in distant shots of the stage. Proximity can matter if candidates get the opportunity to mix it up, but at this point, the lesser-known presidential aspirants need all the free camera time they can get. So, if you see some of them leaning towards center stage, don't be surprised. End quote. Okay, this next item is a short one. I mentioned some of this yesterday in the outro, but it bears a minute in the main show. For the debates next week, I am working on some bingo cards for each night. These are meant to be fun and relatively simple. Most of the squares involve particular candidates saying certain phrases, or the moderators mentioning a given word, or easy stuff like that. When the cards are ready, I will have a full segment on them, including easy instructions on how to print them and all that stuff. So these debates, and I guess the bingo game to a far lesser extent, are a great opportunity to get exposure to candidates and issues. But I do want to mention three things now, so you can think about them before the debates. First. I don't think elections are a game, but I do think if you're willing to sit through four hours of political talk across a couple of nights, and then maybe do it again every month for the next, like, year or so, you know, it does make some sense to me to have a little fun while you're doing it, right? Hence the bingo. 
And the second thing I want you to think about while planning for the debates next Wednesday and Thursday night is who you want in the room while you're watching. Do you have kids who might be into it and who might be awake at that hour? How about neighbors or friends, family, small sports teams, coworkers, maybe people you know who don't listen to this podcast, but who are willing to come to your house for some free food or something? In my experience with debates, they are way more engaging with an in-person audience if you can find one. Some years back, I actually watched the Bush-Kerry debates in a movie theater full of people, and that was surprisingly awesome. Okay, item three. Here is the most important thing I want you to consider doing during the debates, especially if you have kids around. But really, this is a note for everybody. And that is, when a topic comes up during the debates that you don't know much about, I urge you to write it down. Like, if you're not sure what I don't know, carbon capture and sequestration is, or the details about reparations, or some weird word or acronym like HUD or USMCA, just write it down, and then later on you can look it up, or you can ask me on Facebook or Twitter, and I will do a little mini-segment to address the Q&A for that kind of stuff. So that's my main thought while you're planning your viewing, even if it's just you by yourself, which is, by the way, how I'll be watching this, because, you know, it's kind of my job. Please make room to make a note of the things you don't know that much about. The net effect of that is it will come out of these multi-hour marathons with a better understanding of both the candidates and the issues. Montana Governor Steve Bullock just barely missed the cutoff for the first debates. As I reported earlier this week, he has qualified for the second set next month, but we're definitely looking at tiebreakers to whittle that field down to 20 people. So the question for today is, what's Bullock gonna do on those debate nights next week? Well, he's actually got a pretty solid plan. I gotta hand it to him, this guy is making lemonade right now. Okay, so his plan is to hold televised town halls before the debates air in both Iowa and New Hampshire. He's doing one each night, and they will air in the hour before the main event. By doing this, he's reaching those crucial early voters, even without the national audience tuning in. And he's getting a ton more time than the five or ten minutes each candidate in the main debates is likely to get. Reading from a Politico story by Alex Thompson, quote, Bullock will appear June 26th on Iowa's WHO-TV with Dave Price, and June 27th on New Hampshire's WMUR with Adam Sexton. The appearances will be televised ahead of the debates in Miami rather than concurrently. End quote. Meanwhile, in a different story, Zach Montalero reported on a poll conducted by Politico and Morning Consult about the debates themselves and whether voters think the process for candidates getting on the stage has been fair. This is pretty interesting to me because they asked whether voters had opinions about those DNC rules. That's the stuff about 65,000 donors and 1% in three different polls and all that. These are things that I've talked about on this show over and over, but you know, let's face it, y'all are a very engaged crowd. Your average primary voter likely has not even heard of this stuff. Well, the poll does seem to prove that. Reading a line from the piece, quote, Only 39% say that they have heard a lot or some about the complaining over the DNC's rules for qualifying for the debates while 61% haven't heard much about it, or anything at all, end quote. And by the way, that specific number is based on people who said they planned to vote in the Democratic primaries, and the margin of error is plus or minus 3.5 percentage points. 
Okay, and one more quote that demonstrates where normal voters are on this debate fairness stuff today. Quote, When asked if they approve of the job the DNC is doing in running the debates, a slim plurality of 33% say they don't know or offer no opinion. Roughly another third, 32%, believe the DNC has been running the primary debate process somewhat fairly the largest group of voters to offer an opinion. All told, a 54% majority gave the DNC positive marks, saying they're doing either a very or somewhat fair job of wrangling the two dozen candidates running, with just 13% saying the party is doing a somewhat or very unfair job. End quote. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This next story is a long one, so I guess stay hydrated. Last night, Joe Biden spoke at a fundraiser at the Carlisle Hotel in New York City. I'm going to read from a piece in the New York Times by Katie Gluck here. Quote, At the event, Mr. Biden noted that he served with the late Senators James O. Eastland of Mississippi and Herman Talmadge of Georgia, both Democrats who were staunch opponents of desegregation. Mr. Eastland was the powerful chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee when Mr. Biden entered the chamber in 1973. I was in a caucus with James O. Eastland, Mr. Biden said, slipping briefly into a Southern accent according to a pool report from the fundraiser. He never called me boy. He always called me son. End quote. Okay, pause button time. I grew up primarily in the South, and this is a quote that requires cultural context. I can tell you firsthand that in the South, even in the 80s when I was a kid, when an older white man spoke to a younger white man or boy, the typical term used was son. Happened to me all the time. That's what Eastland called Biden. And that's actually normal, given their age difference and Eastland being a Southerner. Now, here's the other half of that equation. In those days, we also often heard Southern white men refer to black men in general, regardless of their age, as boy. I heard that myself in the South while I was growing up. If you heard some white guy call a black man boy, we all knew precisely what that meant. The speaker was saying that the black man was inferior. It was a derogatory term. And this is very well understood racist language for that era. It is not complex, hidden code word stuff. So for Joe Biden, who lived through this stuff far longer than me, 
The statement he made last night is really troubling. Either he doesn't understand the racial context, maybe, or he misspoke, I, I hope. Let me read that line to you one more time. Quote, I was in a caucus with James O. Eastland, Mr. Biden said, slipping briefly into a Southern accent, according to a pool report from the fundraiser. He never called me boy. He always called me son. End quote. Okay, in a separate story on the same topic over at the Washington Post, Isaac Stanley Becker gave some context as to why Eastland's views were so troubling. He wrote, quote, Biden's campaign didn't immediately return a request for comment about why it would be notable that the Dixiecrat, who thought black Americans belonged to an inferior race and warned that integration would cause mongrelization, didn't call Biden boy a racial epithet deployed against black men, end quote. All right, now I want to read you one more segment from the Washington Post story that talks about Biden's history of invoking Eastland as someone he could work with despite their differences. Quote, I've been around so long, I worked with James Eastland, Biden said when he was stumping for Doug Jones two years ago. Even in the days when I got there, the Democratic Party still had seven or eight old-fashioned Democratic segregationists. You'd get up and you'd argue like the devil with them. Then you'd go down and have lunch or dinner together. The political system worked. We were divided on issues, but the political system worked. End quote. Okay, now this is where we find ourselves asking a complex question about Biden's call for civility, which is a key part of his campaign message. The question boils down to, let's say you're a senator and you've got somebody else in the Senate whose politics are deeply, deeply different from your own. The question today is, do you have lunch with these people? Do you form friendships with them, even though you have such intense disagreements? And that is where reasonable people can and absolutely do differ on this issue. Let's briefly put aside Biden's son versus boy remarks from last night, which were at best confusing, and talk about this idea of working with people whose beliefs are radically different from your own. That's what Biden overall seems to be getting at. He's saying, look, you might really dislike the other side, but to dehumanize the other side is to take the low road. Let me read from the New York Times again from last night's remarks by Biden. This is a long one, but I think it gets at Biden's intent. Quote, He called Mr. Talmadge one of the meanest guys I ever knew. You go down the list of all these guys. Well, guess what, Mr. Biden continued. At least there was some civility. We got things done. We didn't agree on much of anything. We got things done. We got it finished. But today, you look at the other side, and you're the enemy. Not the opposition. The enemy. We don't talk to each other anymore. Mr. Biden made the comments about Mr. Eastland and Mr. Talmadge as he spoke about the need for unity, including a call for bipartisanship that has drawn derision from some liberals who don't see room for compromise in today's polarized Washington. I know the new left tells me that I'm, this is old-fashioned, he said. Well, guess what? If we can't reach a consensus in our system, what happens? It encourages and demands the abuse of power by a president. End quote. So, again, this is an area to watch. Biden is essentially on his own in this field, talking about the need for deep bipartisanship and a return to a former era of civility. But at the same time, Biden is the frontrunner. 
So as the other candidates respond to Biden's message and either agree or disagree with it, we should listen to the case they make as well. I hope we're going to see an honest discussion on this issue, this idea of whether and how we can create a modern political system that involves opponents rather than enemies. And last up today, a quick look at what Mayor Pete Buttigieg has been up to over the past few days. He had to cancel some campaign events to rush back to South Bend in the wake of the shooting of a black man named Eric Logan by a white police officer. Logan died on Sunday. Now, today happens to be Juneteenth, which turns up the volume on both this story and the previous one. Juneteenth marks the day in 1865 when American slaves were emancipated in Texas. Because of this, Juneteenth is also known as Emancipation Day or Freedom Day. It is the symbolic marker of the actual end of slavery in America. Okay, so back to South Bend. Reading from an Axios summary of the incident Buttigieg has been dealing with. Quote, The officer involved in Sunday's shooting, Sergeant Ryan O'Neill, alleged Logan had refused police commands to drop a knife. But investigators found he didn't have his body camera on at the time of the shooting, according to WSBT. The shooting wasn't recorded because he was driving without emergency lights while responding to a call about a suspicious person going through vehicles, investigators said, per the Associated Press. End quote. Long story short, Buttigieg and the police chief of South Bend have reached the conclusion that police body cameras must be turned on at all times when police are interacting with civilians. This includes things like traffic stops and all other contact with the public, including non-emergency situations. Buttigieg also issued a statement. He wrote, quote, In the wake of Sunday's shooting, we must acknowledge the hurt and honor the humanity of all involved in this loss of life. We also have a responsibility to take every step that can promote transparency and fairness, both in dealing with the recent incident and looking towards the future. End quote. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Okay, this turned into a surprisingly heavy show toward the end. Thanks for sticking around to the very end here with me. I didn't have room today to get to Julian Castro's housing policy stuff, so I'm pushing that to tomorrow. Meanwhile, a quick Yarden update. The hydrangeas are blooming, and they are going nuts. We've got dozens of gigantic blue flower clusters opening up right next to the jasmine that is also blooming and smells great. I love this time of year, and after I record this, I am going to go outside and spend some time there. And I hope you can do that today as well. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.